0: Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people. I think art and creativity make the world go around, and I love people that are doing things like that. And uh, I love hearing about what goes into it and how they keep it going. Today my guest is Adam Sank. He's a stand-up comedian who has grown into doing a one-man show called Adam Sank Bad Dates. It's a more theatrical experience than he's presented before and he's performing it in palm springs at oscars on january 11th and 12th so uh if you're in the desert you gotta go see that um i've known of adam for a while connected through the Derek and romaine universe um i always thought he was really funny and interesting and so glad i got to talk to him so Before we get to the interview, though, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by me. I do it. I don't have any sponsors. Uh, I do it because I love it. And if you want to support it, there are two things you can do. You can go to DennisAnyone.net and leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. Help me cover my expenses. I always appreciate that. Or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows under the Derek and Romaine banner. And for a monthly subscription fee, you get my show early and all these other great LGBTQ shows. So check that out at DNR Studios. And now, here is the interview with Adam Sank. Joining me now from New York, it is Adam Sank. He's the star of the one-man show, Bad Dates. And tell me the subtitle again. I think it's so clever. A one-man show about many men. Right on. So you have a background in comedy. You've uh, hosted radio and podcasts. But this is more like a one-man show. It's a little more theatrical. There's lighting cues. Thank you. Yes. There's music. Like it's 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 that kind of vibe. How would you describe the show to someone that knows nothing about it?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, what you saw because I know you've seen a recording of it. Yeah. That was a very specific production that I did at a theater down in Wilton Manors, Florida. Um it it is less staged. Um in other venues that I'm doing, right? Because it. It, I, it, I was
0: like, is is that set from the another show that's there? Because it's a very like practical living room set, and very, I was like, wow. very
1: much. I'll I'll explain all of that uh, a little later, but it it's basically it started out as um, somebody invited me to come down to Florida to do an hour of stand up. I had been at that theater twice before. And so I was like, okay, what am I going to do this time? And and I don't really perform stand-up much these days. I, I kind of retired from it back in uh, 2018. Uh, and so I was just thinking back over old material that I had. And a lot of it had to do with dating and hookups and relationships. And they were all terrible stories of, uh, you know, dating the wrong guy, hooking up with the wrong guy, et cetera, etc. Um, so I thought, well, I'll just put all that together into a show. And as I was putting it together, I wasn't very excited about it. I, I felt like I've done these jokes so many times and they're just jokes. They don't really add up to much. And that's why um, I kind of was sick of standup in the first place is I just felt like this is kind of unfulfilling for me at this point.
0: You wanted to go deeper.
1: I wanted to go deeper. And I thought, what if I told that story? And I was thinking of a very specific experience that I had about 10 years ago uh, in dating a guy that ended really tragically.
0: Yeah, it's the final story in the piece, which we won't say what happens, but I can understand how something like that would inspire you to rethink a lot of things.
1: Well, not only had I never told the story, but I certainly never thought I could tell it as part of a comedy show. You know, I mean, there's nothing funny about it. And, but I really felt like now is the time and, and okay, I'm going to tell this. But then I looked at the whole thing and I said, well, it can't just be joke, 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 tragedy, the end. Right. Right. Because it's just fucking weird. The audience is going to be like, what the fuck was that? They're going to feel manipulated and upset. And I have to, I have to shape this
0: somehow. And I kind of went back to the more seriously from the start.
1: Yes. And so I went back to the beginning. And I sort of came up with an introduction that sort of set up everything else. And then – and this was really the hard part. I came up with an ending. Like, so what does all this mean? What is the audience right. supposed to take away from all this? And uh, once I had it all down on paper, it was about an hour to begin with. And I thought, um, I think this is good, but it could also be awful and I don't know that I can do it. I don't know that I can do non stand-up comedy, Period. Right. Um, And I almost felt like I don't have a right to do this.
0: Interesting. In a weird
1: way. You know, some of my favorite stand-up specials have involved a serious turn or an unexpected turn. And I love that stuff. But I just didn't think I was good enough or worthy enough to do that myself. So before I moved it to Florida, I tried it out at the Stonewall Inn, um, which is where I recorded both my albums. I love working with them. And I did the show six times uh, this past summer and fall. And uh, and each time I felt better and better about it. And by the time I brought it down to Florida and uh, the theater producer down there, Ronnie Larson, was like, okay, now we're going to add a set. I have this set that's uh, happening for another show I'm doing called 108 Waverly. Your show is going to run in repertory with them. But you can just use this set. It's supposed to be a New York City apartment anyway. Um, And he wanted me to really use it. Like he wanted me to use the furniture and right. come in through one door and leave through another door and right. have lighting cues like you mentioned. And Eat I whatever like, you want. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, we open tomorrow. I don't right. know that I'm ready to add all this. He's like, no, no, it will be fine. It will be fine. And I really fought him. And uh, he was right about everything. And it turned out to – it made the piece so much richer. And it actually got me thinking about like, oh, I should add this and I should – Skip that part and I should explain this more. And by the time I left Florida, it was a 90-minute piece. I love the
0: idea that you felt like you weren't this kind of an artist. Like this was for more serious people. That's not your thing. What are the little moments that get you over the hump to starting to believe in yourself? Or was it one thing that happened suddenly? Or do you just keep saying yes and hope that it comes?
1: I mean, honestly, um, My ex-boyfriend, Patrick, who's a character in the piece, was really important in the development of it. I sort of kept talking to him about it and uh, reading what I had written to him. Him and also, uh, to a slightly lesser extent, my best friend, Scott Hernandez, I I kind of used them as my sounding board. And I would say, like, well, what if I do this and what if I do that? But whenever I've been writing stand-up, this is going back, you know, over the past 20 years, there are certain moments where something will come to me and I will go, Oh, that's exactly the way it should be. It, it feels like a, a puzzle has just been solved in my head. And when that happens, I'm fairly confident that it's going to work. In this case, um, I don't want to spoil it, but at the end, when I talk about a particular television show. Yes. That whole thing came to me fully formed. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, that's the ending. Yeah. That's the takeaway. And I knew it would work. The part that I wasn't sure would work is the tragic story itself. That's the part where I was so afraid to do it on stage the first time I was shaking. And I just kept, I had such sympathy for the audience. I just kept thinking, like, what are you doing to them? You know, and this is so unfair. And I almost thought maybe I need a disclaimer. And in fact, everyone came up to me afterwards and this is after every show I've done and they've just been like, thank you. Thank you for telling that story. Here's what happened to me. And it's, that's the thing about being vulnerable in your art is that it really matters to people when you do it. Yeah. It's fucking hard. It's really the scariest thing in the world, but it, it, it's the thing that reaches people the most.
0: Right. I, uh, This is sort of related to that. There's a podcaster that I like to listen to named Scott Galloway. He co-hosts a show called Pivot. He's a business guy, but every once in a while he's really vulnerable in his stuff, and he talks about. And I always lean into it, and I always and so I've sort of like in the last couple years have decided to bring more of that into what I'm doing here. Like I I cry all the time on here. Everyone's like, "Oh God, here he goes." But I think you're right. I think if you have the courage to tell the truth, it connects. It can connect. Um, Your story is particularly. Intense because I, I think it would be one of those things where you don't even want to try to think about it, let alone turn it into something artful. Like I think, I guess my question is this: How, without saying too much about what happened, what have you learned about overcoming or or moving through things that are tragic? First of all,
1: I couldn't have done this show any sooner than I did. It took a while. It took me ten years before I because I I have thought over the past ten years of other ways I could do something with this, either write a play or write an essay or, you know, I'm a writer first and foremost. And I thought there has to be a way that I can tell this story. And I felt like I needed to tell the story, but I couldn't until now. I, got, I, I understand that, that much distance from it at the time. um, Because it was, you know, I would say like, like when I think about like the worst things that have ever happened to me, like in terms of, uh, how they made me feel, what, what the trauma that they produced. Yeah. There's like three in my lifetime. There's uh nine 11. <clears throat> Not that I was in nine 11 or lost anyone really close to me, but just being a New Yorker and particularly being a, a, a news producer at that time for Fox news, um, that was just that whole day and the proceed and the ensuing weeks, um, were, were just, like nothing I'd ever experienced up to that. And they would, they were, it was just constant terror. This feeling of like, we are under attack. We are under attack. Like I couldn't shake it. Mm. Um, so that, uh, testing positive for HIV, which was like three years later. And then this in 2013. And I would say in each of those cases, you just get through it, um, by leaning on the people around you. You know, you you um you ask for the help that you need. And fortunately, I've always been able to do that in times of crisis. I've said I've been able to say, like, I'm not OK and I need you right now.
0: Yeah, I was um, just listening.
1: Great friends.
0: I was just listening to another podcaster that I like, Dan Harrison. He he was saying he wants to get a tattoo that says never worry alone. Uh, Like when you've got that thing going on, don't just keep it. Find somewhere to put it. Um, going back to your show on the lighter side, when I saw the title, I thought it might feel like one of those montages in movies where people are, are – the protagonist is in one chair at a restaurant and they keep rotating through <laughs> crappy dates. I thought it might feel like that and it isn't like that. There are a few like moments like that but they're actual relationships that 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 last a while and I don't like those. Mm. I'm not a fan of those montages anyway. I think they're a little cliche but also I always relate to the weirdo. I'm like, I'm not the protagonist right. in this dynamic. I'm the weird guy where they're like, no, nope, sorry. That's, you know, that's who I really well, to. Here,
1: here are the two dirty secrets of this play or this piece, whatever you want to call it. One is it's, it really isn't about dates. There's only one actual date in the whole show. Yeah. And it's uh the one with the guy that I call Anderson Cooper. Yeah. Uh That was an actual date. We went out to a restaurant. We sat across the table from each other. Everything else I describe is either a hookup or a relationship um, because I don't date much. And the other secret of the show is they're not really bad dates. They're not bad guys. They may be bad for me. I think people come in with an expectation that um, that I'm going to just describe like a bunch of nightmare people right. and I'm just this innocent victim that's experiencing all this. That's not the style of my stand-up at all. I've always been about self-deprecation, and I'm the asshole in, in almost every one of these stories. There's a couple where, in, including the Anderson Cooper guy, you get uh, out the ass-holed. guy who's an asshole. You get out assholes yes. a few
0: times. But 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 one of
1: the things people have said to me is, I like that you don't trash the people in this show. They're all good guys, and I still care about them.
0: I'm the problem, it's me, to quote Taylor Swift. I'm the problem, it's me. And yeah. the truth
1: is, I... Every guy I've ever been in a serious relationship with, with very few exceptions, I still am on good terms with. They're all good guys. you know. Yeah. We just weren't right for each other for various reasons.
0: One of the guys you dated is named Felix in the piece. And you say – you tell people like he's the hottest guy ever and yeah. you warn the audience, you know what? It's not – dating the hottest guy in the world isn't always what you think it's going to be. What's it like to date somebody that you feel has that much currency in the hotness department?
1: You know – at the time i was uh, i met him when i was 29 and we were together until i was 33 i think now i would handle it better but when you're when you're young and especially if you're if you're used to feeling desirable to suddenly be the undesirable one in every scenario because everyone is so hot for your boyfriend and all they can talk about is how hot your boyfriend is you start to feel like really shitty about it. Like, I just felt shitty about myself everywhere I went with him. And I'd like to think that I've developed enough of an inner, uh, self-esteem that, you know, what I look like is not so important and I'm okay with being the the less hot or the unhot one. But, um, but at the time, yeah, it was bad. And, and, um, it affected everything. It affected our friendships, You know, every guy that we were friends with, I felt was secretly in love with him. And a lot of
0: them were. Right. And he and he uh He enjoyed this attention. Yeah. Yeah, he was into it. I was just I just flashed on this moment that I had. I I had a friend um uh years ago, I was with a friend who was very, very handsome, and we met a guy in a bar who had read one of my books, and he was talking to both of us and he was kind of gushing to me and it was feeling good and (laughs) I was like – he goes, you know, there are just a couple of things that can make me stop in my tracks and it's writing like that. And then he looked at my friend and he goes in a face like that. And I was like, oh, (laughs) fuck, man. (laughs) But I had that feeling like –
1: So this is not in the show, but uh, (laughs) you know how I talk about my fraternity brother, Will? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's a real person and that's his name. And And uh, was he
0: your first gay friend or is that somebody else? Was that Jay? My first gay friend was
1: Jay. Okay, um the guy that i met with Will okay. when 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 we walk into the gay bar this right. is all in the sh- this part is in the show but yeah. what's not in the show is Will and i have stayed friends for years he's still stunningly hot he's just this big alpha muscle guy that like nobody thinks is gay when they first meet him except for other gay guys and um we one weekend this is about 10 years ago we went out to Fire Island and we, we got hired by Daniel Nardiccio to work one of his underwear parties. We had to work the door. So we're standing in our underwear, uh, on the boardwalk outside of this big house where Daniel's having this party. And all of these queens are coming by and sort of scoping us out to figure out whether or not they want to pay the $50 cash to, to go into the underwear party. And I hear one of them say to his friend, come on, we should totally go in. Look at these two. They're like hot and hotter. And I turned to Will and I said, in case you're wondering, I'm hot, you're
0: hotter. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's a similar moment. But at least you got hot. At least you got hot. At hotter. least I got hot in yeah. that one. Yeah, yes. yeah, with, that's good. With
1: Felix, it, I felt like – either I felt invisible or I felt like a pile of shit. Yeah. Like I was never – no one ever thought I was attractive when I was with him.
0: I had a friend I still uh, – I'm friends with who lives in New York City and and he was a trainer uh, in, in – Chelsea for a while. And I went to visit him one time and I was walking around, we had lunch and ran a few errands, and it was like being with the biggest pop star in the world, with a celebrity. It was like being with a celebrity and I also if I, I I I was thinking if I were him, I would find it annoying.
1: Like that's what I was just going to
0: say. I would I, not this is not that fun.
1: I think it's sometimes exhausting for them.
0: I think so. Um, I think we all think, "Oh, what would that be like?" To, and I think uh, a little bit of a drain honestly
1: i mean i think I think, like everything else in life there 's pluses and minuses right The pluses is the pluses are uh people treat you really oh, well, yeah, whether you deserve it or not, like right. you get better service in a restaurant or a store, more people want to be your friend, more people want to fuck you. these are all good things, but like you 're saying, you probably just have days where you just want to be left alone and you walk down the street and every head is turning towards you. Like, I do this. I, I see a hot guy at my gym and I spend my whole workout staring at him. That's probably creepy and annoying for him.
0: All day, And I'm not the day. only one doing it.
1: Yeah. You know, but I can't help it. Like, I just stare at a beautiful thing.
0: Well, and I, I got to myself. observe him try to manage it. Try to be nice enough so he's not Perfect. a jerk because he's a nice person at heart. But also, you shut that shit down because it ain't going yes. anywhere. Like... It was just like – I was like, oh, maybe this isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's a kind of a – being hot is like a beyond a full-time job. Um, it's like a
1: superpower, but it's also a responsibility. Thank
0: you. It's like Spider-Man. You have – what is it? You do great – With great you, power comes great responsibility. Thank you. It's like that. Uh, your, pl- your play reminded me of my first gay bar, and I just thought about this. I was working on cruise ships, and we went to a gay bar in Hawaii with uh. um, a few other people, and I think I'd never been to one before. Um, actually I'd been to hot bods in Phoenix once and I saw two men kiss and it was like, it was like, uh, it was like being in a museum. Like, I can't believe that happened. Um, but I remember remember being, I used to be freaked
1: out by seeing guys kiss.
0: Yeah. Like I had, I had sucked a dick. Yeah. And
1: yet I saw two guys kiss and I was like, whoa, like that's, that's weird. Yeah. You know, like that seeing the intimacy to me was weirder than the sex.
0: Yeah. And it's – it's I still like kind of like, oh, wow, when you see two people kissing and they're really into each other, it it's extraordinary sometimes. Yeah. Um, man. Anyway, I remember being with Paul, uh, the male guest entertainer on our ship who's like a little bit older than us. Not a lot, but he was from Australia and he was just talking about the wonders of gay bars like in his Australian accent. Like we can come here and everyone's gay. Like you just couldn't believe the phenomenon of it and what it meant and – and I was like I, – I was kind of like – I just remember that vividly. Um, talk about your first gay bar. What do you remember about it? You, you talk about it in, this, in the piece.
1: <laughs> well, it's such an amazing story. The fact that I traveled 150 miles away from campus so that nobody would know me and I walk into my first gay bar and the first person I see is this hot fraternity brother of mine who I always thought hated me and turns out was actually into me. Like that – if you saw that in a movie, you'd be like, this is not real. Yeah. That's how it felt. But the other thing is when I mentioned that it that the bar was in Sagatuck, Michigan, a good portion of the audience always goes, Oh, like people who know Sagatuck have a real fondness for it. it it's like the province town of the Midwest.
0: So it it's like and, a little gay um, mecca, like a place where a lot of gay people go. I love that. In the
1: summertime, yeah. not the rest of the year. The rest of the year it's like a Bible belt town. But yeah. um But it was a perfect place to come out because You know, the Douglas Dunes, the name of the bar, it's just this sweet little restaurant and piano bar. You know, it couldn't have been less threatening. Right. Um, And I had this idea in my head of a gay bar, you know, being like, you know, where Al Pacino would show up and cruising. you know, just like this, like hardcore leather bar with people getting pissed on in the corner. And this was just like a very sweet, friendly, non-threatening place. At the same time, I was terrified, you know. And and what you just said about – walking into a room and and everyone's gay having that experience for the very first time it, it it's indescribable yeah you know it's like growing up as a as a Martian on earth and then suddenly you walk into a Martian bar
0: yeah the relief. And you're like i'm
1: i'm home
0: yeah yeah and i think you know, it's something that's getting lost i think with uh more and more places closing and more things going online but uh 100% yeah. you know
1: i've said this before on my podcast Coming out for me, the most exciting part about coming out was not all the sex and, you know, having boyfriends and like all that stuff was great. But what really meant the most to me was suddenly having guy friends, real guy friends for the first time in my life with whom I had stuff in common. Right. Because I had straight guy friends in high school and the first couple years of college, but I couldn't relate to them the way I could. I can relate to gay people gay men or, or, even women, you know, like there was just that thing of like, Oh my God, you like musicals too. And you hate sports also. And you, and these are all, you know, these are all stereotypes, but they were all true for me. And I never met another guy like that until I came out and suddenly everyone around me was like that. And it was so exciting. It was like, Oh my God, I want to talk to you about everything, right. like Everything I've ever felt. I want to talk to you about.
0: I told this story last week on the podcast. I met this girl at a coffee shop, and her name was Kira, and it turns out she was named after Olivia in Xanadu. And when she said <laughs> that, I'm like, I know 10 people right off the top of my head that I have to tell this story to right away. Like, right. it's not just gay people, it's Xanadu gays. And that's a window, like, and I know them, you know And I mean? So it's like, it is like having that shared language, because you remember connecting to these things as a, as a kid when you were alone, and then you find out there's all these people, that have the same right, that, touchstones. I didn't know
1: other people grew up loving Paul Lind on yeah. Hollywood Square. Yeah, you thought that was Charles just your Wilson thing. And Riley yeah. on Match Game. I thought that was just me. Yeah. Because there were no other children male or female who cared about those things right. or or watching the Oscars every year as a young child and being super into it. Yeah. Like to have that suddenly shared with with everyone around me um was really like it was it's my it's still my favorite part of being gay. I love our shared sensibility. I love our shared cultural touchstones yeah, and values and sense of humor, like all of it. I just, I really enjoy um, being around other queer people and, and sharing those like things that like straight people just don't quite, they're not quite tuned into.
0: Yeah. One of the premises you bring up at the top of your show is people saying you're whatever the age you are. I think you're 52 in the show. Um, almost 53. Now. Almost 53. You're, uh, you're 52. Why are you single? Like uh, yes. that you get that a lot, I have gotten that some in my life, but not a ton. Um, maybe they know why maybe i don 't know, but it is a, a it is a thing where it 's easy to feel like there 's something wrong with you that there is um, what i 'm starting to sense is that boy, there are advantages to having a partner to move through life with, you know, especially as you get older and you get sick or something like that or you know i was having this conversation on new year's day with a friend of mine that i went hiking with we're both in a place where we're doing really meaningful creative work but mm-hmm. we're not making a lot of money and mm-hmm. we're anxious about it and i was like i don't know if i'm going to keep doing this i don't know what you know i'm kind of telling him my thing and he goes get a husband cuz he's got a husband that has a good job <laughs> right. you know and and it was like oh that is a big difference <laughs> you know there is
1: that security Um, which is, you know, which I guess is nice. I I don't know. I'm at the point in my life where I really don't care whether or not I'm ever in a relationship again. Honestly, like if, if a great guy comes along and, and we're great together, we're really compatible. We both want the same things. Wonderful. If that doesn't happen, I don't feel like I'm missing out anymore at all. Uh, I, was there a time
0: when you did feel like you were missing out?
1: Most of my life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Most of my
1: adult life, I felt like I need this to be complete. Yeah. You know, not having a, a significant relationship is like not having a place to live. It's like not having a job. Like to me, they were that essential because they had been – that had been drummed into me. Yeah. From an early age, just not even by my family, just by like culture. Yeah. um, But – I look around and I say this in the show. I look around at, at friends and family members who are in long term relationships. And most of the time I think, thank God I'm not in that relationship. Yeah. And not because they're with awful people or because they're, they're, they have horrible relationships, but just I see the struggle and I don't envy it. I, yeah. I there, there's, there's a real freedom to, to, to only being responsible for myself and my dog. Yeah. But people will say, not only do they ask, why are you still single? But they go, um, are you seeing anyone special right now? And I go, no, I'm not seeing anyone. And they'll go, it'll happen. And I'm
0: like, it, <laughs> it doesn't have to it happen. It might not. Yeah.
1: It might not. Yeah. It probably won't at this point. I mean, how many people fall in love in their 50s and stay with that person for the rest of their life? It's not that common. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, like I don't feel any lesser because of it anymore. Yeah. I have I come- really don't.
0: No, I've gotten to that place. This is, this is kind of where I, where I've landed around, around life generally is that I think it doesn't matter what I get or how things go. All that matters is who I'm being. And if I like the idea of having a love story in my life, I need to, I need to give that guy my number at the thing. I need to be bold around it. But after that, I can let go of whatever happens. I just, if I, if I stay open and if I'm interested in someone, have the courage to, you know, say something or put it out there, then that's good enough. And uh I, I've yeah. been to friends' weddings, and I'm really happy for them, but I'm very glad to say I'm not sitting there going, when's it going to be my turn? You know, I right. I really don't have that. Right. Um, and I yet, don't either.
1: I mean, I fear, I sometimes fear
0: getting old alone
1: and being isolated. Right, the practical you know?
0: aspects of it. Like what I was talking about, like he had mm-hmm. someone to rely on. I always notice, you notice this? At award shows, the winners always have people to thank that are in their house. They're always like, they always have a wife. And I wonder if there's some scientific study you could do where people that have that person at home saying, don't give up, you can do this, uh, have more success <laughs> at the Oscars.
1: But I think we all have that. I mean, if, if we're fortunate, I right. think, like I have that in my life. I've got people rooting for me. I've got sure. people, the, the, the support that I have gotten in producing this show and selling it on various stages has been overwhelming to me. I can't believe how many people are like rooting for me and supporting me. So I don't need a husband for that. Right. You know, at the end of the day, we all die alone. Yeah. Even if you've been married for 40 or 50 years, like the likelihood that you and your spouse are going to die on the same day is is like winning the lottery. One of you is going to go sooner than the other. And, and that person's then going to be alone. We all, we're all in this by ourselves. And if we're lucky, we, we have a few good people around us, whether it's romantic or platonic or familial that, um, that show up for us. And that's the most we can hope for.
0: Um, I'm going to share something that I do. Sometimes I go on dates by myself that I think of as dates like, if there's a theater show that I want to go to, and I have good friends that do things with, and sometimes I'm just like, I'm just going to go by myself. And as the lights go down, I hold my own hand like I'm on a yeah. date. That's so sweet. And you know what? I like it. It's like I get to do what I want. Like, I'm not waiting around for whatever. And, like, um, it's a thing I do. And it's meaningful. I and I don't it, feel like it's less than the other thing.
1: You know, a lot of times I'll want to go see a Broadway show, and I can't find someone to go with me, and I should just go. I should just go by myself. Yeah, go. And- you know,
0: treat myself. Yeah, I do that a lot. Uh, Yeah, it's- it's, I think it's great. Yeah, it's the thing I do. Uh, Something else I thought about while watching your show, I've noticed in my own life, and I don't know if you'll relate to this, when I'm doing better professionally, my stock goes up in dating. Like I date more, more guys are into me. And it's not that they, it's not like they're saying, what are you up to now? It's not like we talk about those things, but it's, I think it's um, a confidence or something that comes through Um, 100% when you're a creative
1: person, when you're a creative person and you're doing whatever it is that you do and you're really firing on all cylinders, I think you exude a much more confident, um, sort of appealing version of yourself. I totally agree.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. If I look back over the the times in my life when I had more, more of that going on, um, Your show deals very frankly and hilariously with sex. Um, My favorite line, uh, I've looked at shit from both sides now. We don't have to say how that comes up, but man, it made me howl. Um, You like verbal. Um, I do. I like the dirty talk. Do you find that – If it's done well. If it's done well. Do you find that in modern porn, uh, fuck yeah is overused? I feel like –
1: yes. I feel like that's the go-to. Oh, Dennis, I search far and wide for good (laughs) verbal porn. It is not – I mean one of the things I've always thought is I could have a really good career as a pornographer because I know how to write a really hot script. Yeah. Like I know how to create like a really hot gay sex scenario Um, and, and most pornographers I feel do not or they just don't care enough because it's just suck me, fuck me, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, give it to me. Yeah. Like, I want characters. I want a scenario. I want to know how they got into this place and who they are to each other. And, like, that's the stuff that really gets me.
0: What they say matters. And if I'm looking at a, an erotic story or something, I will scroll down and see how much how many quotation marks there are. Are people yes. talking? I need yes. them talking. And me it's too. cool if they say cool stuff, but I want them talking. Uh, I want uh, the
1: dialogue. Th- so, Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So I, th- I thank you for saying that. Um, you have this – recurring thing in your show called the daily Facebook unfriending daily birthday unfriending yeah where did that start I found I found it like a great little way to break up the show and and they're very funny
1: it's so funny because everyone in New York who came to see the show knew exactly what I was talking about as soon as I brought it up and there was this huge applause break in Florida I'm not Facebook friends with most of those people and they were like what so I started this thing years ago where Uh, Because I had too many Facebook friends. So every day I look at who among my Facebook friends has a birthday that day. And I usually unfriend one or more of them. Right. It's like a competition. And that's as far as it goes. Usually it's just like, "Ah, I don't talk to this person anymore. Right. Or this person isn't on Facebook anymore. They haven't posted in three years. So I'll just unfriend them. But sometimes I'll go, oh, my God, that guy. Right. And I'll remember a fucked up interaction that I had with him or her. It's almost always a guy. Right. Um, so I'll unfriend them and then I'll write a little capsule summary as to my (laughs) the nature of my connection to that person, and I'll post it on my wall after I've unfriended them. And I won't name them or tag them. It's like a blind item. And I started doing this probably ten years ago, and they've just become really popular among my Facebook friends. They love – and they all say, don't unfriend me. Don't unfriend me. But they love when I'm like trashing somebody else anonymously. Um, So I decided to use these as little buffers in between each story in the show. I do – I read one of my actual
0: daily birthday
1: unfriendings from the past.
0: But they're clever. So you put thought into them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like they take a while to come up with. Like and you do it every day?
1: I don't. <laughs> I don't write the stories every day. I, that only happens probably like once or twice a month. Right. I unfriend people almost every day. Right. But, but the only the only
0: special s- ones get a get a poem. Mm-hmm. Or or right. something like that. Um, so one of the guys
1: in the sto- in the show that I whose daily birthday unfriending I read was a, was an actor I hooked up with who told me a highly improbable story about. Patty
0: LuPone. It's amazing. It's amazing. But we, we, you were talking about how he was sort of saying, oh yes, she was a diva, but I put her in her place. And yes. I think we all know that person.
1: We I all have one of those. Person. We all
0: have one in our life who are kind of like super name droppy. And oh yeah. And I was the one that, you know, we any, any yeah. sort of
1: bragging, like if you're, if you deprecate yourself, like I love you. If you brag in any way, about how much money you make or how much power you have or, like, influence or, or you know, what celebrities you know, – like, that it – it is such a boner killer for me. I hate that shit.
0: Yeah, not into uh, it. I
1: find those people ridiculous.
0: All right. You picked a few questions from the observation deck. Actually, I said these are the ones we're going to do because they're related to your show. So you didn't actually pick them. What's the craziest thing you've done in pursuit of a crush? Oh, so as soon as I read this,
1: I thought about high school. Yeah. Um. I, when I was in eighth or ninth grade, I hooked up with a, a guy from school uh who was on the wrestling team. He was one of the hottest guys I've ever hooked up with to this day. And we just, we hooked up like once or twice where it was like a sleepover and we like blew each other a little bit. Like, Two or three years later, because you don't drive in New Jersey until you're 17. Right. When I got my driver's license, I would drive to his house at night in another town and wait outside in my car in hopes that he would, like, either come outside or just be getting home. And I'd be like, oh, hey, I just happened to be in the neighborhood. What's up?" Like, I was a crazed stalker. Right. I could not get out of my head, like – how much I wanted to be with him again. And like, it never happened. He's a straight guy. He's married now. But like, I, I remember consciously stalking him sitting outside his home more than once in, in my Jeep.
0: And your well, a Jeep is that's a, that's a panty dropper. You had a sexy Jeep. <laughs> did it have the top? Kind of, was it kind of like you're naked to the elements. You could just fly out at any moment
1: during the warm months. We would yeah. take the top down. Yes. Jeeps are sexy. Do you, do you feel yeah. like
0: it upped your sexy quotient? I think it made me the target of even more
1: bullying in high school because uh, there were people who were jealous of me for having it and they would shoot nails into my tires in the parking lot.
0: Wow, that's a whole other one-man show. Um, Yeah. All right. You also are going to answer this question. What's the quirkiest, shallowest, or most shocking reason you decided, no, I don't want to date this person?
1: Well, it has to be the one I talk about in the show, which is the guy who kept borrowing my neosporin and taking it with him when he left.
0: But only the neosporin. It wasn't like a klepto,
1: generally, no, right? Just neosporin. But it, but but the principle of it pissed me off so much because it happened over and over and over again. And each time I'd be like, "Did you take my neosporin?" And he'd be like, "Oh yeah, sorry, I forgot." I was like, "Stop fucking stealing my neosporin! It's enough."
0: It, yeah. You know, it's in that Neosporin is something you need when you need it. Like, it's exactly. not like, oh, I can go get scotch tape. No, it's fucking, there's, an, it's there's a it It's a you cut word. yourself. Yeah. Right. <sighs>
1: right, exactly. So, but that's probably the most petty reason. I'm sure there were, there there are a million other petty reasons. Yeah. I mean, if someone has like bad grammar, will I won't see them again. Uh, bad breath. You know what? Automatic- I kind of
0: regret uh, being a little judgy about. There was somebody I dated who had a lot of Disney cells, like animated Sell, and I'm not a. Was Disney. it Romaine
1: Patterson? <laughs> no, I know it wasn't.
0: Uh, I, I'm not a Disney gay. I like it like once every three or four years, but I, you know, and I, 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 I was. I should have given that person more of a chance because he had other well, good attributes. But and that wasn't the only reason. But if they're really passionate about
1: something that you have no interest in, that is a problem. Well, yeah, or because I want to share passions sure. with whoever I'm, I'm with, you know. Yeah, that like was, if somebody hated Broadway, that would be a problem for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But in this case, I'm the hater. That's not a I'm the artist. hater a lot of the time. If someone's really into <laughs> Harry
1: Potter yeah. movies or Marvel movies, yeah. like we got nothing in common.
0: Yeah. Middle Earth, I don't care. I'm not, no. Don't give a shit. All right. Interesting. All right. Uh, here's another one. What kiss from your life felt like something out of a movie?
1: Okay. I know this one. And this guy is actually coming to see my show in Palm Springs. Yay! Uh, it'll be the first time I've seen him since 2010. So New Year's Eve 2010, I had just broken up with my sailor, which I talk about in the show. Yeah, that you moved and, west for. And it was my one of my last nights in San Diego. I was I I probably moved two days later. So New Year's Eve, I'm out alone because because my sailor and his best friend went to L.A to party. And I would stayed in San Diego and I went out to the gay club riches, which was across the street from where we lived. And I'm dancing and it's this big crowded dance floor. And I see this man all the way on the other side of the dance floor. And I'm just staring at him and he's just beautiful, just beautiful face, beautiful body. And he sees me and we just start like very slowly dancing toward one another, like getting closer and closer until we meet in the middle of the club and we just fall into an embrace and start passionately making out. And it was so incredibly hot. And, you know, the fact that I was high on ecstasy definitely added to it, but it was, it felt magic. It felt like this is a magic moment that like I'm dreaming about.
0: And you're going great. to see and, – and did you see him after that? Did it go anywhere?
1: Uh, so we went home together that night and then he came back the next day for like an afternooner and then that was it. Um, uh, and at the time he was a porn star, I should mention. But uh, – so then I moved back to New York and I never saw him again and he reached out to me recently and was like, I live just outside of Palm Springs and I'm coming to see your show. Do you want to hang out? while you're here. And I was like, yes, yes,
0: yes. And yes, that's so exciting. I know. Oh, maybe it'll happen right in the middle of the show. It'll just, the music will start (laughs) pumping. And, uh, do you get nervous when you know somebody's in the audience like that? Or does it excite you?
1: Oh, not about him. Um, not about someone I've hooked up with. Like when I did this show in New York, I had so many straight people come from my hometown to see it. Uh, my sisters both came, their kids came, um, Friends of my parents – my parents did not come, but friends of theirs did. And this, as you know, this is a filthy show right. with graphic discussions of gay sex. And it was I, – I wouldn't call it nervousness. I was very conscious, as I would tell these filthy stories, that there were straight ears in the audience, some of whom were like my parents' age hearing this. And, and I was sort of hearing it through their ears and being like kind of grossed out. But everybody said that they were fine with it and, and they enjoyed it. So –
0: I think of that sometimes in terms of this podcast. I have more sexual conversations based on whatever people are talking about or what the work is than I would have had before. And I think, what if somebody from my hometown – Like I don't know. I do have that that little voice in my head where you hear it through the years of somebody from your past or from a different part of your life. And then I think, you know, the truth will set you free. Just talk about stuff. And uh, I hey, like, think that's –
1: girls i went to high school with yeah including one i had a crush on a big crush on they came to see the show and and i'm sitting there talking about getting fucked up the ass and yeah. it being messy and i'm like what? Wow. what what am i doing how am i telling these these girls who i once like hid my sexuality from and now i'm just like flinging it in their face yeah. but it you know they and they're paying for it.
0: it they're paying for yeah. it to have it flung um you mentioned in the show at one point one of the characters that you date or one of the people you date, or maybe it's you, you're talking about being able to com- compartmentalize sex and love. It's me. It's you. You're able to do it. Yes. Um, has that evolved over time, your your ability to do that? Because I think sometimes in storytelling, there's this idea that's kind of a cliche that like, oh, it's all about fucking, but deep down, don't we all? Like, there's always like a, it, it, there's always like a, it can't just be about sex. It, it, you know, um what am I trying to say? How I guess my question is this, has that evolved that relationship over time as you've gotten older or has it always um kind of stayed constant? I mean, listen,
1: I'm a much healthier person now uh than I was during the events that I describe in the show. Yeah. Um in many ways. Like I'm a more integrated person. I I um I've worked out a lot of my shit. I've, you know, I don't have any anger for anyone in my life. I don't walk around with resentment anymore. like in so many ways, I'm like a, a much healthier person than I was during most of those relationships and most of those hookups. Um, but I, I do I can still compartmentalize. I mean, it's very easy for me to go to the gym, work out, go into the steam room, you know, get a, get a blow job from a stranger, come, and just go home about my merry way and completely forget about it. And, and it's just like, I don't know. It's just like part of my workout, it doesn't happen every time. But when it does, it's like, oh, what a nice treat to end my workout. Um, and then I admire I that
0: so much. I really like Yeah, I wish I were wired that way uh, at times. I'm, I, and I'm not, it's not moralistic. It's more like my body responding and stuff like that. I, I think uh, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I just never got that thing, that part of it down. And oh, uh, no,
1: I've always been a bit of a whore. But yeah. then at the same time, I can also really um, enjoy sex with somebody I'm, I'm in love with. Right. It's different. It's a different kind of sex. Yeah. You know, because your your brain is involved. Right. <laughs> you know, your brain and your heart. I admire
0: um, people whose body stuff, the primal stuff, can just take the wheel and be like, we've got this. You know, like like they get on a train. It's like they get on a train. I've seen it happen. They get on the train to Orgasmville and they're off to the races. And, it doesn't
1: always happen. Right. I mean, there are times when my body fails me in that right. respect. Either I can't get hard, or I can't stay hard, or especially as I get older, yeah. or I can't come. But that's okay too. I mean, so here's here's a way in which I've evolved. That doesn't have to happen, you know. I can start to hook up with someone uh, and go, mm, I'm not really into this, and walk away. In the past, I couldn't have walked away. Once, it, once there was an opportunity, I had to see it through to the very end. Now it's like eh, it's not the it's not the end all be
0: all right. You know, I, like, I don't I don't, it, I don't have to prove something with this, right? It's like eating uh,
1: junk food. Like the junk food's there, it would be delicious if I ate it. I don't have to eat it. Um, I'm able to see it for what it is now. Yeah, it's it's not a sex is not an emergency ever.
0: Yeah. Um, you you know? write about working at the New York Times for a while in the arts section. Yes. Um, what was that like?
1: It was the best job I ever had. And what were you doing? <clears throat> so my career at the Times began when in 2002 or 2003 um, after I had completely quit my job, my, given up my career as a TV news producer. I didn't want to do it anymore. All I wanted to do was try to be a stand-up comedian. And I was, uh, I was a cocktail waiter. At Barrage. That was like my primary source of income for the first part of that year. And I was very happy doing that. I was very content. And then a friend of mine said, uh, you know, I work at the Times and um, I can get you a job as a freelance clerk there. And you can work as many days a week as you want. And it's really good money. And it's pretty easy. And I said, sure, let's, you know, hook me up. And he did. And for a while, I was working four days at the Times as a clerk And then two nights a week cocktail waiting. And it was sort of perfect. Um, And then the times offered me a full-time position and sort of gave me this little promotion. And I became the administrator of what was then called the regional section, which doesn't even exist anymore. They were special sections that only came out on Sundays in Connecticut, Westchester, Long Island, and New Jersey. And I, I was in charge of all the arts listings for those sections which was like kind of drudgery, but it was, you know, I, I enjoyed you it. You love the and arts. Then, yeah. Yes. I mean, I exactly. And then they promoted me to administrative manager of the culture desk, which I did for like the last two or three years that I was there. And I loved it. I loved being surrounded by like the smartest people in the world, all of the reporters and critics that I worked for. Um, Some of them were crazy and and difficult and eccentric, but they were so smart and they were such experts in their field. And I would have stayed there forever, but I met the sailor.
0: The sailor uh, and you moved to San Diego. Did he ever wear the uniform with the bell bottoms and the tight crotch and the butt?
1: Uh, yes. So most days he wore khakis. He right. wore his khaki uniform, but on special occasions he wore his whites and he looked very good in them.
0: I bet they – oh, so good. So who were the big critics around the time you were there? Who was the big film critic at the New York Times?
1: Okay. So, well, Tony Scott, who's still right. there. Manola Dargis, who's still there. Great. Oh, it's Dargis.
0: Um, I thought it was Darg. I thought the G was hard. Thank you. I've never
1: quite – been short. You have yeah. to know that a lot of those critics never come into the office, right. so I never met them. I never met Mishiko Kakutani ever. Right. I dealt with her books yeah. every time they came in, but I never met her. Um let's see, Ben Brantley yeah. was the chief theater critic. Charles Isherwood was the uh st- second string theater critic. Um uh Alessandra Stanley was T V. Yeah. A lot of the, a,
0: lot a lot of the people of these that big are names. still
1: Kicking around, Checking yeah, around. and then there were all the art people, um, Holland Cotter, yeah, and um, and Bill Carter was still there doing TV, and uh, um, what's his name, that that amazing journalist who who is now is now dead. He wrote a wonderful memoir called The Night of the Gun.
0: Hmm. I Sounds can't familiar, think of it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's
1: it. a great book. It's all yeah. about his struggle with uh, addiction.
0: Did you get drunk at the Christmas party with Maureen Dowd? By any chance? (laughs) I never met Maureen
1: Dowd. Yeah. Uh, She was an op-ed. I don't remember there ever being a Christmas party, to be honest with you. And I definitely did not socialize with most of those folks. Yeah. But I just, I've always had such a love for the New York Times. I was raised on the New York Times. Yeah. You know, my family would sit around my parents' bed on Sundays and read Arts and Leisure and do the Hirschfield cartoons, Circle the Ninas, and it's just always been in my blood and so to to not only work for the times but to work for the art section yeah um it was a thrill and an honor and uh and i should have never left (laughs) because once i left
0: they wouldn't take me back they wouldn't take you back after you left the gray lady the gray lady once you break up with the gray lady she's like done isn't that what they call the new York times the gray lady yes i was a bit of a
1: controversial figure i think i pissed off some people and also uh the Times was a, was a much larger operation then. Yeah. They had a million people. You know, every job you can imagine had its own person. And, and the economics of that over the years became prohibitive. And now there's like, you know, one person doing five different things. Yeah, um, well, just so they the just, conversation. They don't have as many clerical people as they did.
0: Just the conversation that your friend said, oh, yeah, I could probably get you in there. Like they need – like that just seems like a conversation that has not happened to anyone anywhere in the last 15 years.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, anyone yeah. could get a job as a clerk in those days. Wow. And, and literally, my job was to – here was my job, just to let you know that this no longer exists. In the morning, I would hand out newspapers. Like, I would, I would go to the mailroom and get a stack of New York Post, New York Daily News, Today's Times, Newsday, whatever was – you know, had come out that day. And I would distribute them to all of the reporters and editors in my section. I was in Metro at first. Um, and then the rest of the day, I would answer the phone – Or the reporter would say, get me so-and-so on the phone, and I would hook them up with someone. So I was basically like – I was like an old-fashioned secretary slash telephone operator, and I'm quite certain that nowadays either they get their own damn paper or they read the papers online um, and they answer their own phones and make their own calls.
0: Yeah, you've been phased out. So, yeah. But what a time. You mentioned, so you think you can dance in your show. And I appreciate that because I fucking love that show. And it's coming back. <laughs> Did you know that?
1: Is it? No. It's coming
0: back with uh, who's it's a unique. Oh, Allison, Twitch's widow, Allison. Oh. Is one of the judges. Wasn't that just the saddest it's thing? The saddest thing in the world, Twitch. Uh, I still think I, about that I all the time. I still don't
1: get it. I think about it too. And I think about the fact that Travis Wall. Is now like exposed as an alleged sexual predator, and he'll never have anything to do with that show again. And yeah, a lot of darkness has, go- uh,
0: yeah, it's gonna be all Mandy Moore all the time. Um, yeah, yeah, but um, and Nigel, you don't know if he's weird or not, but he's the guy you gotta have him in there. But he's I love a fucker. that too.
1: he's a fucker. I, I think he's such a homophobe.
0: Well, he used to be really, like, when the flaming guys would dance, he would really be kind of like, you need to butch it up, queen.
1: He should to be more masculine. Yeah. (laughs) That was always his critique. And then also, here's what really pissed me off. There was that, but then there was also this thing of, like, whenever there was a, um, like, he'd watch a a male and female dance, and – The woman would be attractive and he would always say like, oh, you could see his eyes light up. He was really feeling that. He was really in love with her. And there was just this constant uh, incessant like we're all heterosexual. All of these male ballerinas are all straight. And I was like, cut the shit, Nigel. Like you know that most of these guys are gay. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, okay, you don't want to talk about it on the air. That's fine. But stop forcing them to pretend to be heterosexual by projecting all of these fantasies onto them that they're not having.
0: Right. And also communicating the message that the more masculine, the more heterosexual they seem, the better they're going to do with right. your judging yeah like yeah, i really was, think he's a dick yeah uh, but he's changed over the years too like you could mm. see that kind of you know I, i'm not saying he's not a dick but you could see his evolution like if you look at some of those earlier clips you know no glad awards go into that guy anytime soon right there's some story about paula and him like that she said that he she, i don't know I, paula abdul Paula Abdul. yeah i think it, somebody oh, wow. told me that to i've not read that but i I shouldn't discuss it if I don't know the, the facts. But the show's coming back. Kat Dealey's going to be there. I love it when the kids dance. What can I say? Me too. Yeah, I'm excited. Ariana DeBose was love loved, her. So you think.
1: Love her. Yeah. Or them. Yeah. Not sure. If Not, that's sure. Not sure. Not sure what's
0: going on. So tell people how they can see your show, Bad Dates.
1: Yes. So Bad Dates is at Oscars Palm Springs. The first night is sold out. That's Thursday, January 11th. The second night, we still have plenty of tickets. Friday, January 12th. Show starts at 7. It's about an hour 15 at this point. I'm trying to make it a little shorter than it was in Florida. And you can go to – the easiest way to do it is just go to my website, adamsank.com. There's a direct link to get tickets on either night. Um, And I hope to see those of you SoCal people there.
0: Well, here's the thing. We're doing the mismatch game in Palm Springs on the 16th. And oh. do I dare try to get down there early? I know you I am scared You yeah. dare. Uh, should I dare? Um, you're not still going to be there on the 16th, are you?
1: No, I fly back yeah. uh, Saturday, the uh, 13th.
0: The 13th. All right. Well, uh, people should go see your show and I hope you get to do it more. Um, let me look at my list and make sure there isn't anything like really great that I, oh, here's something I wanted to ask you. When did you know you were funny? <laughs> oh, I think
1: probably very young. Um I knew that I could make my family laugh i could I could make adults laugh as a child, which was really important to me because it was like one of the only ways that I got positive uh affirmation and positive attention from them um and definitely, once I got into school, I knew that I could make other kids laugh i was I was very much the class clown,
0: yeah, and it uh, particularly when I was young and it helped you It was like a social lubricant it helped you make friends and yes and very it. much and
1: yeah. and you know. In my family, humor has always been pr- very highly valued. So if you if you could tell a funny, interesting story, then you could speak at the dinner table. If you couldn't do that, it was like, shut the fuck up. We don't want to yeah,
0: hear away. Um, Yeah, sachet away. That's wild. Like, I didn't have that kind of family. There was one uncle that was like sort of thought of as the funny storyteller guy. But I just remember him having that reputation. I don't remember being enthralled by it or anything like that. Like there was just literally nobody doing the things that I was interested in doing, but you know, we find our ways. Where I you- didn't
1: know I was going to be a comedian though. I always thought I was going to be a, um, like a musical theater person. Cause that's what I did all through childhood and that's all I ever wanted to do. And it was only when I became an adult and was like, Oh, you have to like go to school for this. Yeah. Like you have to actually be trained. You can't just like be in a Broadway musical um, and I thought, like, well, what else can I do on stage? And I knew that I could write, and I could probably write funny yeah. jokes. And so that's when I started doing stand-up.
0: Do you love chorus boys as much as I do? Like, I someday want to be a chorus boy. I feel like I don't need to be out of – I don't need to have a lead. I don't even need to have lines. I just need well, to have some Capizio jazz types I mean, I'm in,
1: I'm in awe of them because yeah. they're so incredibly talented and, and have such a work ethic. Like, to – to become a dancer on Broadway you have to like start when you're a child and just work your fucking ass off and never stop. Um and it never gets easier it gets harder. Yeah. As you as you get older. So um I am yeah I mean I've great um admiration for them. I've never wanted to be one because I've no ability as a dancer. I've never been able to to follow choreography or to learn to dance. But um but yeah I'm often I often stare at them during shows <laughs> yeah and try to figure out which one i want to you know have sex with the most
0: yeah and then and sometimes they change and sometimes i bet, i'm sure you have i'm sure that's all <laughs> other show um so what do you do now you you not doing your podcast anymore you're taking a break from that um you're working on the show what else are you up to
1: i've had the same day job for going on 8 years now which is actually the longest i've ever stayed at any job um i do marketing for a faith-based investor
0: interesting
1: and I would explain it to you, but it, your your eyes would glaze over, and so would those of your listeners and viewers. Do you like it? It's an, I do like it. I work for a very good organization that's doing a lot of good in the world.
0: That's cool. I like that. And do you yeah, work from home, I or is there an office? I never mention them by name.
1: Um, so I used to work in a cubicle uh, up near Columbia, and ever since the COVID shutdown, I work right here at home, and I am happy as a clam. There it is. I love working from home.
0: I love it. All right. Adam, I've long admired you and known of your work, and then we kind of connected through the Derek and Romaine universe. So I'm glad we got to have right this back conversation. At you. Um, congrats on your show. Here's my final question. Yes. We established at the top that this is kind of a new format for you, sort of a more open, more vulnerable. What has it meant for you to do this show in your life?
1: You know, it's been such an unexpected gift because I really thought I was done with this part of, of my life. I didn't think that I was going to be doing stand up anymore, um, or any kind of performing. And I kind of made peace with that. <clears throat> and the truth is I don't ever want to go back to just stand up. This is something different. This feels like the most meaningful thing I've ever done on stage. Um, it, it I enjoy doing it. I enjoy the feedback that I get from people afterwards. And I want to keep doing this. I want to. I want to write another show that has kind of this same structure, where it's like mostly for laughs, but it's actually about something, and it doesn't have to all be for laughs. Um, so it's kind of. I don't know. It's. It feels like a, a an unexpected act two in my life that I'm very much enjoying.
0: I've noticed other comics kind of doing this, like Mike Mike Barbiglia. Uh, I just saw Alex Edelman's show at the, Mm -hmm. at the taper here. And it it really feels like stand up. the rhythms you could tell that's his background, but there is a story and there is a theme, but I think the trappings around it, he's probably got a nicer dressing room. He's at the taper. You're thought of more of as an artist, right? You know what I mean? It's not like uh, I want 15 minutes at the, you know, basement or whatever it is. Um, It's a different world of where you can perform, how you're treated. Have you observed that?
1: Yes. I mean, listen, I, I, there's, there's absolutely no shame in just being funny. Right. Right. Like people that can get on stage and just kill an audience to the point where the audience is crying and holding their stomachs. And like, that's a real talent. And um, those people are amazing and they have all of my respect, but I don't want to do that or try to do that anymore. That doesn't really interest me anymore. I want to do this kind of thing. When, when I see Hannah Gadsby, right. do uh, Nanette or Douglas. Douglas I happen to think is better and and maybe the finest hour of stand-up ever. Or when I see Gary Goldman do his special, The Great Depression, a few years ago, or any of Mike Birbiglia's specials. Like that, they mean so much more to me than because they are hilariously funny, but they're not just funny. They actually move me.
0: They make you think and about your um, own life. They, they, yeah, they relate I, to and them I, and connect th- to them emotionally. Yes. Yeah. And I
1: think they do, they do reach people in a, in a very special way. Um, as to whether I'm treated better, I mean, listen, I'll never or go treat back. Or treated differently.
0: Treated differently. I'll never You're go seen back to comedy different. clubs. Yeah.
1: I will never again do a comedy club. Comedy clubs are shitty, toxic places that are run by shitty, toxic people. Um, and I feel bad for any stand up that has to perform in one. I have now come up with a model whereby I produce it. I write it, I perform it, I find a place to do it, I sell the tickets, you know, like I don't, I mean, I have so much more freedom now. So I don't know that it's about getting treated better or getting more respect. It's just like now I'm in charge of my own show. And and like you said, I'm not scrounging for 15 minutes at 1am, you know, at, at the, at the village lantern or, or, you know, some other place. I, I just, I don't ever want to go back to that. That was a great training ground. It, it taught me how to deal with any kind of audience and it, it definitely like taught me how to be a stand up, but I don't want to ever go back to that. That is not a fun life for me.
0: Well, I think it's cool that you're doing this and people should go see your show. And it's been really fun to talk to you.
1: You too, Dennis. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Hopefully we'll uh, meet in
0: person someday at some point. I'll come to New York. I hope so too. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Thanks again to Adam Sank. Go see his show if you're in the desert on January 11th and 12th and learn about it at adamsank.com. All right. So this happened. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Um, We had a a puppies emergency in our uh, house last night. Um, Yesterday I had exterminators over. Uh, to spray for roaches and they tell you to keep your pets away for two hours while they after they do it and so we did do that and then brought the pets back like two and a half hours later and um, after dinner Enzo started throwing up um, like this white foamy stuff uh, pretty violently and uh, so I called poison control and then I ended up at the 24-hour urgent care place and they were very nice and Um, And then my roommate's dog, while I was at the hospital, started doing the same thing. So Gretel, that's the name of the dog, uh, they ended up coming to the hospital as well. Um, So they kind of stabilized him, but Enzo's still, like, hacking even the next day. And so, I don't know. I don't have any fun thing to say about that, any spin on it. Uh, I guess my warning is if you're getting uh, sprayed for stuff, you know, maybe be careful. I don't know if stuff got on their bowls and they drank it. I don't know. Hopefully he will be okay. Um, but it was a it was a pretty sleepless night. Um, so there's that. And even, you know, I have my gratitude practice and I always try to think of things that I'm grateful for. And so even as I'm driving to the hospital last night with him, I'm just like, okay, what part of this am I grateful for? I was like, alright, that there's a place that I can go. That's open 24 hours. That's, you know, in my city, not too far. And they were nice. And so there's that um happy new year um but i think it'll be okay um thank you for listening i want to give a shout out to oscar rosario for mixing the episodes my theme music is by mark Danils for replacement music we'll catch you next time on dennis anyone bye